You are now listening to the Life on Repeat podcast with Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and elder care coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Well, hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to introduce a wonderful person. He and I have just been having this great conversation before we started recording. I am talking to Angelo Domingo, Dr. Angelo Domingo. He's a PsyD. He's fellowship trained in neuropsychology, and he's got many years of experience, about 15 years plus experience providing assistance to caregivers and those that are experiencing chronic medical conditions. And Angelo, you live in Jupiter? I live about 30 minutes outside of Sarasota, Florida. Sarasota, Florida. Okay, great. It is so nice. (laughs) (laughs) We are having a heat wave here. I'm in Olympia, Washington, south of Seattle. And I think our high temperature yesterday was 87. (laughs) That's that's a heat wave for us. That is a normal afternoon here. <laughs> Beautiful day in Florida. <laughs> We're wilting here. Costco has sold out of all their fans and air conditioners. And oh, I bet. <laughs> we, many of our homes don't even have air conditioning. So oh, that's the worst. Here it can get up to 91, 92 this time of year. But we have central air. So if you don't go outside, you don't feel it. Then you don't even notice. Well, you are so nice to come on today and talk with our caregivers that are listening. I know I'm going to learn so much from you. I already have. You presented when Lisa, Dr. Lisa Baker, and I hosted a dementia summit a couple years ago. You were one of the presenters and you presented on, I think it was Brain 101, just sort of walking through the brain and yeah. That presentation is still up in that group. If anyone is interested in listening, you can go to the Get in the Lifeboat Facebook page. Those presentations have been archived. So you can look for Dr. Angelo Domingo and listen to the Brain 101 presentation. But today, I would love to, one, you know, one of the things I was thinking is, okay, I've got him. I've got him on. What do I want to talk about? What do we want to learn? And you've been so gracious to just be open to whatever. So maybe what I think would be helpful and we haven't done yet on the podcast is to walk through some of the most common types of dementia, what they look like, what's going on in the brain with those types of dementias, certain behaviors that we might expect to see, just things that might help caregivers out on their journey. That sounds great. And and it's really my pleasure to be here. You know, I, I was really excited to come on. And this may be one of the last podcasts I get to give in this capacity. So, um, but I'm not dying, people. I'm just getting a new job. <laughs> Let me be clear about that. <laughs> Let's make that clear. He's, yeah. he's just moving onward and upward and, and focusing in new areas. So we're Wow, how lucky I am to get to snag you and our listeners get to hear some of your wonderful wisdom before you launch off into the new space that you're going. 
So uh, shall we start by talking about Alzheimer's disease? Which big is, A, uh, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, let's jump in. So to tell us, well, actually, I should just let you take the, the reins here, Angelo, and, and you can start wherever you'd like when, when we're talking. Oh, wow. Okay. So one of the, the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease that separates it from most of the other dementias is the profound memory loss, emphasis on profound. One of the ways neuropsychologists can differentiate Alzheimer's disease from other types of conditions is by looking at people's, not recall, recall of information can be interfered with by for a lot of reasons, but recognition. So, you know, if I give you a list of words and I ask you to recall as many words as you can, there's a lot of reasons why people might have trouble recalling things. Some of them are neurological. Sometimes it can be psychiatric. Some people have anxiety or depression that interferes with their function. But recognition, so if I say to you, did I say X? You know, most people will go, oh yeah, you did say X. And then I go, well, did I say Y? And then you're like, no, you didn't say Y. That tends to be much more robust. You know, very few things can interfere with recognition the way that they can interfere with recall. However, with Alzheimer's disease, the information never gets in. And so it doesn't matter if it's recall, it doesn't matter if it's recognition, people bomb the tests. Oh, Sometimes yeah. they don't even remember having taken the test. Yeah, this is this is super helpful actually. Mm-hmm. This definition, this this sort of distinction between recognition and recall. Yeah, because you're right. One of the so a common and many families probably recognize this too. Sorry, I'm jumping in. I'm getting no, no, Go ahead. <laughs> is when we look at the different types of memory tests that are out there, the MOCA or the MMSE or the slums. And so can you touch on, and, and we'll definitely jump back to Alzheimer's, but can you touch on those types of memory tests and which one you think might be better and which ones are measuring that, that piece of recognition versus recall? I can't. Because of test security. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know what that means. What What do you mean by that? So things like the mini mental or the slums or the mocha. Those are 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 great screening instruments, and they're widely available. You can go online and get them. But the tests that neuropsychologists tend to use are strictly regulated. I got you. Uh, you know, the screening measures are not, but the more in-depth yes. tests are strictly regulated. So I can't really talk in-depth about what they're like or the items on the tests or anything like that. But I can say that most of the time with word lists, it'll be repeated over and over and you and and you'll be asked to recall as much as you can from the list because we want to see how your brain absorbs the information and then at the end there's usually a recognition trial gotcha okay so let me clarify this for our mm-hmm. listeners too and myself 
those memory kind of screen, would you call them screening tests? Like yes. most of the slum, those can be administered by a variety of different folks. Yeah. Like, they're doc- like a doctor or I know I've done them with clients, but, but you're talking about these specialty tests as a psychologist that you've been trained to do. Right. That got you. That are really measuring in depth about those pieces. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we can look at the patterns of those scores and determine if maybe there's some psychiatric interference going on, or there's there's a genuine neurological issue and what that neurological issue might be based on the patterns of, of scores. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. See, I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is the first time someone's asked me a question. I've been like, no, I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. <laughs> you can shut down people. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I don't want the entire field coming after me with uh, spears and. and, and, and... <laughs> this was um, your test. This was your final test. <laughs> So with Alzheimer's disease, you get this profound loss of memory. And that's because the disease attacks primarily, it's called the hippocampus. It's just a fancy word for seahorse because it looks like a seahorse on imaging. Mm -hmm. And the hippocampus is where new information is packaged to be stored elsewhere in the brain. And when the hippocampus is damaged, no new information gets in. People can remember old information because that's stored in the network already, but new information doesn't get stored. So that's why, well, one of the many reasons why it's not worth arguing with somebody who has Alzheimer's disease. They tell you, you didn't say something in their mind. You didn't say anything. Right. This is a great point, actually, that you're bringing up. And, and, and it speaks to the importance of really understanding the unique characteristics of each disease specifically. Mm-hmm. So with Alzheimer's and, and other types of dementia, I'm sure, too, it literally, the information never went in. So if it never went in, it didn't happen. Exactly. Okay. And... Alzheimer's starts in the temporal lobes, right? Which would be right about here and works its way up. So as it progresses, people will develop sometimes aphasia, which means that their language skills start to degrade and they can't express themselves very well. And then as it moves into the frontal lobe, they develop more profound reasoning problems and behavioral problems, impulse control issues. They can't problem solve anymore. And what I often see with my caregivers is, you know, to them, something is so simple and it's a series of steps to do something very basic, like, boil pasta or, or unlock a door, brush teeth, right? But with brushing teeth, actually, as people develop an aphasia, that, that language deficit, they start to demonstrate deficits in using tools because that's actually a form of meaning. You know, when we talk about language, we're really talking about meaning. And so... As things start to lose meaning, 
written words, oral words, tools become very difficult to understand also. So people may not no longer know what to do with a hairbrush or a toothbrush. Oh, how um, that's tied together. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, again. Can you highlight that again? Sure. Part of aphasia or language deficits, as it becomes more advanced, is the difficulty utilizing tools like a toothbrush or a hairbrush or a fork or a spoon. People don't understand what to do with them anymore. And that's actually part of our assessment for aphasia is the ability to utilize tools and mirror movements. So I might say to somebody, show me how you would use a hairbrush. And if their, you know, if their brain is fully functioning in that regard, they'll go like this and show you how to use a hairbrush. Sometimes they do this and their hand becomes the brush. That shows some decline in that, in, in, in that, in their functional ability. But other times they, they may not know. And the other issue that you'll sometimes see with advanced aphasias is word salad. You know, you see that a lot with Alzheimer's disease. They're saying something as if it makes sense, but it makes absolutely no sense at all. And that can be very frustrating because people with expressive aphasia or difficulty articulating, but they can understand know that what's coming out of their mouth is garbage because they can hear themselves. But if you have receptive aphasia, meaning you're not comprehending what people are saying, you don't know that what's coming out of your mouth is garbage. And you don't understand why what's coming out of other people's mouth sounds like, sounds like garbage, that I'm making sense to you. And that can be profoundly disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I mean, I've, seen families, I know you have, and family caregivers that are out there have experienced this. And I think that there's a lot of questions that family members have about how much does my loved one understand about what we're talking about or what they're saying or what I'm saying. And so this is really helpful to clarify the distinction between expressive aphasia and receptive aphasia. One way I teach caregivers to assess that is to give their loved one commands of increasing difficulty. So, you know, the first thing you might want to start out with is to say sit. It's one word and see if they comply, you know, and then you can move on to, you know, blink your eyes and see if they understand that. Do you want chocolate? See if they understand that. And you, and you can work your way up to two or three step commands too. Go to the refrigerator and get me some milk. That's hard. That's a very long sentence. And if somebody can follow that, you can, you can have a, a basic un, understanding that they're, they're understanding what you're saying. Uh, yeah. Now with Alzheimer's disease, it's a degenerative disease. And so so here's a question for you. I'm sure folks are thinking of too is a, is everyone with Alzheimer's disease going to experience aphasia, uh, expressive and or receptive? 
And B actually answered, yeah, answer A. <laughs> Is everybody with Alzheimer's disease expected to experience that? No. The biggest factor is, and this maybe sounds callous, but it's actually a relief to most families is, you know, whether or not something else kills somebody before the disease gets to that point. Yeah. Yeah. And and, conditions that are at play or, okay. Exactly. So the rate of progression and the person's age when they had the illness diagnosed play a factor in that. If someone is relatively young and the and the illness is fast progressing, then they're very likely to experience that. But if someone is in their 80s and they have, uh, you know, usually it's early 80s and they have cardiac issues or who knows what else, then they're much more likely to die of a heart attack before the condition progresses, uh, progresses to that point. Yeah. Great. This is very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Anything else about Alzheimer's disease that you want to talk about that that separates from the other types of dementias? No, but I will say something that relates to a lot of the dementias, and that is you will never, ever, 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 ever win an argument on logic. Okay. So- Unless, unless there's an issue of grossly inappropriate behavior mm-hmm. or safety mm-hmm. or extremely poor hygiene, mm-hmm. it's not worth arguing about. You will never, ever win the argument because when you're no longer bound by logic or reality, there's no, no, rules. <laughs> no rules, right? You just make it up as you go along. I'd like to actually, if I may, contrast Alzheimer's dementia with Parkinson's dementia, because there are there are very common traps that people fall into with Parkinson's dementia, caregivers fall into with Parkinson's dementia versus Alzheimer's. So I've often said with Alzheimer's disease, if you're having the dreaded driving conversation, Somebody could show up to my office having plowed down five people on the road, knocked over several road signs, crashed into my office, have their front fender in my office, and I'll say, maybe you shouldn't be driving anymore. And, And they'll tell me, who the hell are you to tell me I can't drive? I've been driving longer than you've been alive. I'm a great driver. And I'll say, well, look, your fender is in my office. And they can easily say, well, the wall moved. That wasn't my fault, right? Because logic Logic is out the window. So the way I usually tell people to deal with that situation is just disconnect the battery and tell them, oh, the car broke. Yeah. Don't know why. You know, you're bringing up such an important piece here. And this this comes up all the time for families, as you know, and, and, and professionals. Yeah, this idea of therapeutic fibbing versus validation versus reality versus, you know, can, can you, yeah. Buy your rear end off. When it comes to Alzheimer's disease, not, not all of them, but when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, lie when you need to lie because... You know, I I liken it to 
having an eight-year-old child and realizing that your spouse has been cheating on you, okay? You realize that your spouse has been cheating on you and you have an eight-year-old daughter. Do you say to your eight-year-old daughter, I'm divorcing your dad because he's two-timing me, he's having sex with this other woman? No, you don't say that because your eight-year-old does not have the cognitive or emotional capacity to deal with that. So you protect your eight-year-old from that reality. It's the same thing when you have a loved one who has, you know, most forms of dementia. You protect them from a reality that they cannot deal with. Being told you are not functionally able to drive anymore is a reality that a lot of people with Alzheimer's disease cannot tolerate. Yeah. So it's and not even about, it's not even about, they can't accept it. It's that it's not even possible with their brain. Yes, you just hit you, you you just hit a button in me. Okay. <laughs> okay. I can't emphasize this enough. There is not a psychological process of denial going on in your loved one who has Alzheimer's. I'll repeat that again. They are not in denial. Denial uh, assumes that they are purposefully ignoring or neglecting what they cannot emotionally deal with and, and that it is this subconscious process or purposeful process, you know, sometimes it's very conscious where they don't want to look at something or deal with something. Mm -hmm. With Alzheimer's disease, the hallmark of that condition is that their brains tell them that they are perfectly fine. Their brain it itself tells them they are fine. They can't be introspective about their own condition. They can sometimes very accurately point out other people's problems. <laughs> but the disease itself makes them believe that they are a-okay. It is not that they are in denial or if they go to therapy that they're going to come to accept this process. So I, I can't emphasize that enough, that it is not a psychological issue. I want to thank you. I know. I know because I meet with people every day. And I even, you know, as a professional working with folks, you, you still start to, uh, you know, hesitate on therapeutic fibbing, lying. Where, where do you draw the line? How do you know how much to say, how much not to say? And one of the things that I for me personally, that I've just adopted is this idea that, you know what, I have to learn this new language and everything I say or do needs to pass through this filter of, is what I'm about to say or do going to help this person feel safe and secure or not? And yep. if it is great, say it, do it, take action. If it's not stop, pause, can I reframe? Can I re say it in another way? If I can't, then maybe you don't say it at all <laughs> or um, right. you get really creative. So there's a creative process that's invited by the caregiver, right? In thinking about things differently and joining their experience in their world. And I love what you just said there. It is a creative process. 
you have to think on your feet. And I always ask myself, if I'm in the room with someone who has, who has Alzheimer's, what is my goal? You know, and you stated the goal very eloquently, you know, to help someone feel safe and secure. And I think that's really the only realistic goal when you're dealing with someone who has, you know, moderate Alzheimer's disease or worse is to help them feel safe and secure. And that's, that's it. That's all you can do. But I do have to ask myself on occasion, what is my goal here? Yeah. That sort of checking in with yourself again, like, and, and we're all human, right? Not only are we human, but caregivers have had a lifelong relationship with someone. And so those rules are changing, right? And the goals can get lost in that. And so I I appreciate you saying that because I think people need to hear that too, is you're not going to get this the first time, the second, the third, you know, that it's a constant reminder of recalibrating, you know, taking, taking that deep breath, reassessing what is the goal. It's okay if the goal changes, but overall the goal is, you know, to make life easier for everyone, (laughs) right? Yeah, exactly. And that's something that sometimes can be difficult to communicate to caregivers is, you know, you're making your life harder right now. It will make life easier if you recognize, right, for for them, if you recognize that you can't change that person. That person can't change. They're incapable of change. So we, as the caregiver, have to change. We have to adapt. And then that makes life easier. Exactly. And then when we talk about the, the I mean, it kind of flips the, the denial piece, if, if we were to use that term, back on the caregiver. You know, the, the reality that they, <laughs> you as a caregiver, may have a hard time accepting that this is the new reality and that's okay too. We have to be gentle with ourselves and the rules seem like they're always changing. And, but I'm going to reemphasize because we're hearing it from Dr. Angelo Domingo that it is okay to, it's okay to lie. It's okay to understand that people with Alzheimer's disease and other, and other types of dementias don't have the cognitive or emotional capacity to understand, quote, reality. I'm saying that in quotes because who's to say, right? (laughs) And I'm going to go further than saying it's okay. In the case of Alzheimer's disease, it's a necessity. You have to. There's no other way around it. You're going to end up, if you're honest all the time, you're going to end up with a loved one who's chronically in distress. All right. Thank you for saying that. People need to hear that. I need to hear that. Everybody needs to understand that. Now, with Parkinson's dementia, and I deal a lot with people who have Parkinson's and and caregivers, well, I, I used to. That was the bread and butter of my practice. And one of the traps that those caregivers fall into is expecting their loved one to be more functional than they actually are. Because with Parkinson's disease, because the disease attacks mostly the subcortical structures. So not the thinking parts of the brain, at least initially, 
but the parts of the brain that help the thinking parts. Okay, so if you liken it to a business, Alzheimer's disease would would be as if all the executives left up and left the building and there's nobody to make any decisions. With Parkinson's disease, it's as if the support staff has left the building and all the executives now have to manage the waiting room and find all their files and and keep track of their appointments. They can't do that all on their own, right? Love this example. So with Parkinson's disease, you often end up with someone, at least in the later stages, who can be present in the moment and respond appropriately in a conversation, understand what you're saying in that moment. But then it's in one ear and out the other. Because for most of the time, they're on autopilot. You know, they can take things in and understand what you're saying, but then there's no initiative. There's no ability to take what we've said in a conversation and utilize it. A good example of that is, you know, I I had a a couple come in and, and the husband had fairly advanced Parkinson's disease and the wife was just fuming, fuming with rage. I could see the steam coming out of her ears as she walked in. Right. So they sit down And I say, you know, something to the effect of, you know, what would you like to start with today? And the wife immediately says, you know, I want to know why I can tell my husband, we'll call him Bob. I can tell Bob, you know, Bob, you got to eat your breakfast. Here's your cereal. Don't get up from the chair. I'm going to take a shower. Don't get up. Are you going to get up, Bob? And Bob goes, no, I'm not going to get up. She says, then I walk to the bathroom, and before I turn the water on, I hear thud. Because Bob's gotten up, and he's fallen over, right? She's like, why? Why does he do this to me? To me. Yeah. Um, And, you know, so the expectation there is that he's going to follow through with what you've talked about and also that he is doing it to personally aggravate. <laughs> he was the caregiver. So what I did was I presented Bob with a, a, a little test. It's, it's a, it's a difficult test. It requires you to inhibit an automatic impulse and make another choice. Okay, so I won't I, I won't elaborate too much on it, but there are words on a page and you're not supposed to read the words. You're supposed to do something else. But our brains really, really like to read. When we see things, the first impulse is to read. We see a word. Bob could not do this at all. He couldn't even get one correct. And usually when we give this as a formal test, there's a sheet of like two or hundred or 200 of these, of these items. And you go through it really quickly and he couldn't even do one. So then I proceeded to have a conversation with Bob about safety. And I said, Bob, what happens when you get up? And he goes, Oh, I fall. I said, well, why do you fall, Bob? 
I fall because I have Parkinson's and my balance is bad. So I fall. Oh. Is it safe to get up, Bob? No, it's not safe to get up, Bob. Okay, all right. So then we talk about something else for about five minutes. And I say, hey, Bob, what do you do if you drop your fork on the floor when you're eating? He goes, oh, I bend over and I pick it up. Because that is the automatic response, right? Bob knows it's dangerous to get up in theory. He knows that. Like logically, he knows that. But his brain is not telling him that when something else distracts him. If I drop something, I automatically bend over and pick it up. That is what we do. Or use your walker. Use your walker, Bob. Use your walker, Bob. Well, how many years was Bob alive that Bob didn't need a walker? Bob understands why he needs to use that walker intellectually, but his brain is not telling him to go and grab that walker because Bob's on autopilot. And so the, the big trap with Parkinson's disease is to not expect your loved one to have any follow through or initiative because Parkinson's disease affects those motivational parts of the brain, the neurotransmitters. Don't expect them to have follow through or motivation just because they can intellectually understand something. This is huge. This is huge for families. I mean, really, I want to throw something else out here. It's amazing to me how much work is needed, not necessarily, not with the person who has dementia, it's the caregivers and care providers. Understand this stuff, right? That's, um, I mean, I was relating to this couple that you were talking with Bob and his wife. I'm sure the wife's motive was to bring Bob in so you can, quote, fix him. <laughs> yeah, so I get that a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And I imagine what most of the work you were doing with this couple was educating the wife about a lot of this and showing her showing. how Bob can't follow through. Right. Right. Five minutes of distraction. Of it. Yeah. So that's Parkinson's dementia. We have time for one more, if I may. Uh, frontotemporal dementia. Okay. So frontotemporal dementia is like the reverse of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease starts in the temporal lobes and works its way to the frontal lobe. Frontotemporal dementia starts in the frontal lobe and works its way back. And one of the most difficult things about frontotemporal dementia is often people's memory is good enough that you can't lie to them. Uh, they know. Okay. They know what you did and they know what you said, especially in the beginning. But because their frontal lobe is degenerating, they generally have poor behavior poor impulse control, mm -hmm. their emotions may be very out of whack. You know, they may have rage or anger, um, profoundly, I don't know if I said this already, profoundly poor judgment. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they get aggressive and violent. And they're harder to manipulate because their memory is good enough that they, they know what you've said and what you've done. They're not going to forget. And then, and then they have a reaction about it. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes a big reaction. So what's important for frontotemporal dementia and for Alzheimer's disease and most other dementias to a lesser degree, but 
But for frontotemporal dementia and, and Alzheimer's disease is structure mm-hmm. and boundaries, but especially with frontotemporal dementia. This is one of those issues where you can't necessarily protect someone from the reality. This behavior is not okay. You know, it is not okay to be aggressive. It is not okay to get in my face. It is not okay to scream at me. And you as a- Understanding that is what you're saying. What's that? Sorry, they have the capability of understanding that in the moment when you're explaining that. Okay. Right. And it has to be in the moment. Has to be an immediate reaction as long as it's safe to do so in that moment. If someone is in, in a- a rage and they're bigger than you or whatnot. Sometimes it's just a good idea to back off and let them be alone, you know, but if they're that dangerous, then it's probably a good idea that they be placed in a facility that can manage that. You know, it should never, it should never reach a point where someone is aggressive, like physically aggressive the second time. And this is important for folks to hear, right? Yeah, is that it's one thing to understand that your loved one has dementia or a type of dementia, particularly frontal temporal lobe, when you as a caregiver feel that your safety is at risk or you're seeing this type of behavior occurring over and over, that's that's what you're saying is don't let it, you know, take care of yourself and 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 as well as them. Yes, because oftentimes with Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia, people act out because the environment is too overstimulating. It's not structured enough. And that's their way of letting you know, hey, I don't belong home anymore. Okay. You know, and people think, well, I have care coming in for them. I don't understand why they're behaving this way. In a facility or a community, right? they can be insulated from the reality of the world, right? There's no news, there's no phone calls, there are no bills showing up at the door. There's uniformity in terms of the staff and the routine. The routine in memory care facilities never changes. You know, there's certain times of day when there's an activity. Meal times are the same time each time, you know, each day. So. At home, people come to visit, people go out to eat, people have doctor's appointments that they need to go out for. Life happens, yeah. (laughs) Life happens, right? 24-hour news stations, you know, that's all overstimulating. And so if your loved one is constantly acting out, constantly angry, resentful, depressed, That may be their way of telling you that it's time for them to be in a more structured environment. Thank you for that. Yeah, this is, Angelo, I want to talk to you for, (laughs) I I feel like we could talk for hours and hours. Everything you're saying, I have more questions and clarifications. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else? I guess is there, I know we're hopping off here but I want to make sure I didn't miss anything that, that you may want to make sure that our listeners know about or any last words of wisdom. Well, just know as caregivers, learning how to be an effective caregiver is a process and it's a difficult one. 
And so throughout this process, you have to have empathy for yourself as well. We're all going to mess up. We all mess up. I mess up. You know, I let my frustration get the best of me at times. And it's part of being human. So you need to have compassion for your own process and what you're going through and make sure to take care of yourself. That's not just lip service. That is a necessity. The harder it is to care for your loved one, the more time away from that you are going to need. So that's. Thank you. I, thank you. I know people need to hear that and, and continue to hear it. <laughs> I just want to say it was a great pleasure being here and thank you for letting me. This is all our pleasure. And I, uh, everyone I know feels they can have you, you could be on here for hours. (laughs) I need more caffeine though, if I'm going to do that. (laughs) I want to be respectful of your time too, but Angelo, thank you so much. Um, I want to remind our listeners that you can catch Dr. Angelo Domingo's presentation that he did for the Get in the Lifeboat Dementia Summit in the Get in the Lifeboat Facebook group. And I hope you have a wonderful day. And thank you again very much. It was my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.